This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xe plug-in hybrid is built for the best of both worlds. For the city buzz, for the call of the wild, for finding solitude, for sharing memories, for day trips, and for far-roaming adventures. Because with gas and electric capability, the Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xe inspires you to explore more, to explore it all. Tap the banner to learn more. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast, brought to you by the team behind BikeRadar.com, Cycling Plus, and MBUK magazines. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe. And if you can do so, leave us a rating on your podcast provider of choice. It really helps us reach other cyclists like you. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Bike Radar Podcast. I'm Jack Evans, one of Bike Radar's digital writers, and today I'm joined by Dr. Tim Podlikar. Tim has a PhD in exercise metabolism from the University of Birmingham, where he is now a research fellow. He is also a nutritionist at Bora Hansgrohe World Tour Team, where he helped Jai Hindley to victory at last year's Giro d'Italia. In addition, Tim is himself a very fast cyclist and the owner of several Strava KOMs on his local roads around Birmingham. But before we begin, please remember to like, share and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks very much for coming on the podcast, Tim. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. And yeah, what have um, what have you been working on in research and um, practical terms recently? So yeah, the season has started. So basically, I'm trying to help um, Bora guys to um, do their best um, in races. Uh, but apart of that, yeah, um, I primarily ch- I, I'm primarily a researcher. So um, yeah, I'm doing some research here in Birmingham at the moment, looking at heat acclimation and how it affects. Um, the use of ingested carbohydrates. Um, and also I'm just starting a research project in my lab in Slovenia, um, looking at like um, how um, different distributions of carbohydrates, so more carbohydrates at the start or more towards the end, influence the perfor- performance. And are you, are you t- testing, um, sort of looking at, um, at heat for any particular reason? Is that, there's been quite a lot of hot uh, Grand Tours lately. Yeah, definitely. Like heat is one of those things that we want to kind of optimize um, because we know that, in, for instance, in the heat, um, 
the glycogen use or the carbohydrate use is much higher. And we actually want to see like how we can optimize this um, and better understand like what to recommend the athletes. Um, and this is like yeah, the ongoing project that we've been working on for the last year and a half here in Birmingham. Um, and it's still like a year and a half um, to go. So it's like a really long project because it's the study itself is uh, pretty demanding. Yeah, I'm also. Uh, I also live in Birmingham, and I imagine that you've been doing that testing in a in a lab with the air conditioning cranked up rather than outside. Yeah, I mean, the study itself it uh, takes place in the uh, environmental chamber. So this is like a very like small space where we can si uh, simulate different conditions and anything from hypoxia to like very high humidity and very high heat. So in this case, like we are doing most stuff at 40 degrees and uh, relatively low humidity. So it's pretty hot. Um, and have you managed to uh, do any riding yourself? Yeah, I do my best. I can still manage to do like 15 to 17 hours a week, um, mostly indoors. But yeah, um, I do ride quite a lot. It, so it, I, I guess that the times you've, you've got to ride are like, uh, early in the mornings or, or evenings and then maybe squeeze some time on the weekends is that is that how you tend to do it yeah so like today i started my turbo session before five in the morning <laughs> so and um yeah the longer ones are then come on weekends yeah wow that's that's really impressive um yeah that's i think that's a that's a good introduction to um to, yeah to, to, to what you're currently working on but um could we start with your um your role as uh, at Bora and um explain to the listeners what a like professional world tour team nutritionist does so i guess there are like different ways of how uh we do this job like uh, being a nutritionist uh, most teams or some other teams might have a nutritionist um, present in all the races uh, meaning that like the nutritionist is always around or basically the chef um, becomes um, a nutritionist as well. Whereas in our team, we have two um, nutritionists that are working like part-time um, and we both kind of are responsible for certain races. So we divide um, races between um, each of us. And then we always have um, like a WhatsApp group or something like this so that we always provide um, advice to the riders. Um, and we're really lucky to have um, a chef on mo um, chef on most races or even like sometimes a kitchen truck um, so basically um, then we communicate with the chef what he needs to prepare to the riders and we can like personalize everything there um, and there is always a doctor at the races as well anyway um, and we can talk to him and he can also give advice or um, yeah give out stuff to the riders um, and this kind of allows us to be present in all the races. Um, and so I can also like do both jobs, like being a researcher and a nutritionist at the same time. Besides the flexibility that that um, hybrid role allows you, are there any benefits um, to you not necessarily being there all the time? Would you need some, I imagine some teams have the nutritionists weighing out the, the food for all, all the meals or the riders. Um, but I gather that's not the approach that you take. Yeah, I'm not like a person that would really like to like weigh all the food out, um, mainly because I don't believe that we can actually very accurately predict energy expenditure and the energy demands in the first place because riders are so different and um, like 
even knowing the power output, we don't really know the efficiency of the rider, so it can be like a big error. And if we are having a big error on the um, energy expenditure um, side of things, we can't really be as precise on the energy intake side of things either. Um, so there is a lot of like these kind of estimations going around, uh, yeah, going. Um, and one of the things that probably is also like kind of comes to my mind is that I don't want athletes to be um, relying on my advice and just like telling them for every single gram uh, what they need to eat. It's also like the feeling and how they feel and what they actually, yeah, how they recover, what the demands of the next stage are. So like there are so many things that also influence the decisions about the nutrition. It's not just like energy in, energy out. Um, and this kind of allows us to basically, yeah, um, be pretty pretty flexible in um, in this, um, and also at the same time, like they always get the same riders always get the same kind of treatment on all the races, be it in UAE or in Italy or in Spain. Um, in all the races, they expect the same from the nutritionist, um, other than like covering just certain races and then be without support on others. Um, so they basically know what they can expect and how things work. Um, you mentioned efficiency there. How does that affect how many calories a rider actually expends for producing a set number of kilojoules through wattage? So basically, we know that the power um, output only represents like around 20 to probably like 24% of total um, like energy turnover um, in a given amount of time. Um, so basically, like if you're producing, let's say, 200 watts, that's basically just 20% of the total energy that goes um, around. And like you can do the math, but because like, I don't have the numbers on top of my head. But if you change this number 20% to 25%, for instance, like to be in extremes, you get a very big difference in energy demands, like really huge differences. And we can estimate or measure um, efficiency in the lab, but riding on the rollers or the turbo trainer is much different to what riders are doing outdoors anyway. So I don't know how representative those numbers we would get indoors are to what um, would happen outdoors. Um, so we are always dealing with this some sort of like, yeah, um, errors. Um, and we kind of need to appreciate them and understand them. And as, as soon as we do that, then we kind of understand why sometimes prescribed amount of carbohydrates or food in general is perhaps not enough and you really want to add more. Um, and we just play around that. So I suppose that means that calorie counting is more of an approximation and sort of calculating how many macronutrients you need is more of a um, estimation rather than exact science. Oh yeah, even like if you uh, upload your ride data with the power to different platforms like I don't know Training Peaks, uh, Strava, um, and some others, you will always get different numbers for. Um, calories because every company has their own equation for how to calculate the energy expenditure. Um, and there is no like right way because any of those equations like estimate certain amount of like yeah, efficiency and they do or do not uh, taking into account the resting metabolic rate uh, in that period. So it's very, very difficult to kind of be very exact. Um, we have a software in the team that kind of tries to um, 
come up with numbers of um, fats and carbohydrates used so kind of so that we can get an, uh, an idea of how intense the exercise um, was um, so that we kind of know okay so this was really easy for this rider um, and certain like uh, another um, session or ride would be very hard and then we can like kind of know um, or estimate whether the dinner has to be purely carbohydrates pretty much or it can also have some fats um, but yeah it's all about like estimations here and as a nutritionist what are you trying to achieve for the riders both in training and nutrition uh, and um, and racing so yeah this is a really like a good thing a good, a good question and the first one that comes to my mind is obviously I want to optimize the performance and when it comes to performance optimization like carbohydrate and sufficient energy availability are the keys um, so just looking at this um, I would say I just eat carbohydrates so basically all day every day uh, 24 hours if possible but that's simply not uh, what we do because well, we need to stay in energy balance or we, the weight is going to go up. Uh, I mean, we don't want it. So it's always like fine managing between making sure that riders have enough energy, but not too much energy um, so that the weight doesn't go up or sometimes we actually want the weight to go down. Um, so this is kind of yeah, pretty much micromanaging between this, those two. Yeah, it's a time of year that um, there's. You mentioned um, Paris Nice there. There's some early season racing, but I imagine some of uh, your riders are trying to lose a little bit of weight, particularly if they're aiming uh, to do well on climbs later in the year. So, how do you manage their weight while ensuring that they can still perform in races? Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So yeah, weight loss during races, I think is not something we actually want to do uh, because these days, like the, the, the demands in um, early races is so high um, that basically like Pogacar and those guys are producing really, really good numbers. So you can't go there and pretend that, yeah, you're going to win it without basically being on top forum. Um, so it's pretty much about trying to lose weight after the races or in the um, training uh, period when they go for an altitude training camp, really like small energy deficit um, can help like to lose some weight, uh, but definitely not in races. I don't want to see that because the recovery would suffer too much, I think. So, so in training is where you slightly compromise um, the optimal amount of carbohydrate in order to achieve that negative energy balance. Um, but how, how sort of, how careful do you need to be with that in terms of the deficit? 
Yeah, you definitely don't want to go like too to, to low with the um, amounts um, you're giving out. And I think like one of the one of the big difference between um, our race and uh, training is that in training you have many of those zone two, let's call it, uh, training sessions, which are relatively low in intensity. So you know from the start it's going to be low intensity. Um, and this means that before such a training session, you can probably create a certain amount of deficit. And if you fuel uh, properly during the session so to maintain like blood glucose levels, you can still finish that training session. Uh, you wouldn't be able to do like some hard intervals during it, but you can still do it um, like as um, efficiently um, as required. But whereas for like, interval training sessions, you definitely want to be fueled well. Um, and that's when you can't really um, yeah, um, do too much of a deficit, in my opinion, uh, before and during the training session. So you fuel well. Uh, but for those like longer endurance rides, you can basically um, do the weight loss. That, that sounds like a potential area to make a mistake in, both for pros and amateurs, sort of under-fueling the harder sessions. Um, what other mistakes do you commonly see both uh, professionals and amateurs making with nutrition? I think the biggest mistake I see, I've seen, started to observe recently was um, eating too much protein. Um, and this comes from this like sayings that protein will make you full um, and basically make you less hungry. Um, so what then amateurs and also professionals end up doing is basically um, go and um, eat protein in the evening, thinking, well, this is going to be helpful to managing my appetite. Um, but we have to know that like protein can also is used as an energy source. Um, and the in the end of the day, it's all about the calories in, calories out. So if we overdo the protein, what's going to happen is that our glycogen stores would be still low. So perhaps protein will make us full for the next hour or two, but after that, we will be empty. Um, and the next day, if we wanted to perform um, like at a certain level, we just wouldn't be able to. Um, and I think what regulates appetite is also how... Uh, big our glycogen stores or carbohydrate stores are within the body. So if you keep having very low liver glycogen or muscle glycogen stores, this will just lead to like, yeah, uh, a disaster um, at some point during training because um, yeah, we just don't won't have the energy required. Um, so I think this is kind of the biggest problem I see um, in riders, um, yeah, overeating in protein um, and not paying enough attention to carbohydrates. And of course, with quite high protein consumption comes fat because you can't always have lean protein. Um, so I suppose you could actually be um, cons potentially consuming still too many calories, um, yeah, through th through that way. Um, and what, what what do you think about marginal gain? So trying to like optimize your performance through taking certain supplements or using unusual training techniques? Um, yeah, I'm, not, I'm a person that like hates this term like marginal gains because I don't think we, nutrition is about marginal gains. I think it's about making the basics right. Um, and here most people do um, big enough of mistakes and 
focusing on like supplements, whereas you at the same time like fail to deliver enough carbohydrates, um, is just like it's pointless. Um, it's not. It's, it can actually impair performance in the end of the day because basically without carbohydrates you can't do anything, even though you have you take all the supplements out there. So I'm not really a supplement person, um, and I always make sure that like the riders get a sufficient amount of carbohydrates. And only then we start thinking about, oh, can we add like caffeine here and there, or can we add certain supplements? But I think that the best riders would still win without the supplement. So um, it's not yeah, a big, uh, really important thing. Um, and how do um, uh, amateurs' nutritional requirements differ from a professional's um, if, say, after training, They've got to. Uh, they've got family commitments or work or other things that leave you quite tired. Maybe um, require mental energy. So yeah, it's kind of it's pretty hard. It depends on like how much training they do. Um, so because obviously professionals are doing like twenty to thirty hours a week probably on average, whereas amateurs can be doing like ten hours. So basically, the energy requirements are much lower uh, for amateurs than for the professionals. Uh, so this has to be taken into account. Um, but um, yeah, like life commitments and like the family and stuff makes amateurs sometimes fail to fuel properly after the training sessions. Uh, so basically to care for the um, recovery, um, meaning that they don't get like carbohydrates and protein straight after the training session. And then this, this leads to like uh, them being super hungry in the evening, for instance, and then overeating um, in the evening, or the next morning not having breakfast um, and trying to do some intervals in the evening. It just doesn't work. Um, and one thing is also, I guess, that when you have like energy intake of 3,000 calories, let's say, for like an amateur rider, or 5,000 uh, kilocalories for a professional rider on a daily basis, uh, you see that carbohydrate becomes even more important uh, for amateurs because um, you only have 3,000 calories to work uh, with. Um, and the demands for carbohydrates might be actually like pretty similar in terms of like how much you need to replenish glycogen stores because um, you can like pretty much empty the glycogen stores within an hour and a half training session, which is what we all do like, as amateurs. Um, and to replenish the glycogen stores, you basically need a carbohydrate. So going relatively low in fat um, for amateurs can be actually more important than for um, yeah, professional athletes uh, because they have more like room to work um, when it comes to nutrition. And how do your roles as a researcher and a nutritionist uh, complement each other and, and perhaps contradict each other? I love this question because I started or I got into cycling um, basically by a chance. So I was um, a sailor in the past. Um, I never like competed in cycling. And um, once I decided that there is no future for me in cycling, I was like, okay, let's do a career as like, an expert in something. Um, so um, to better understand science, I was like, okay, I need to better understand what's going on in the labs and how the studies are conducted. So let's try out things that occur in studies um, on my own. So I started cycling um, and then I fell in love with cycling as well. So basically then, uh, basically, yeah, um, I started being interested in science um, 
of cycling and then also cycle, uh, started to cycle myself. So I always look at cycling from a different perspective than anyone else uh, because it's mainly this scientific or cur curiosity that drives my um, thinking. Um, and I believe this is kind of really good opportunity um, for me to kind of come up with ide ideas that are not coming from like uh, certain beliefs uh, that um, arise from like past work or, or being a professional cyclist. Um, because I know if I was a sailing coach now, I would probably be doing many things that I was doing when I was a sailor myself, whereas I don't have this in, um, um, in cycling. So basically I have to think, okay, I can't really do it like um, in a way that what I would do because I, there was no me uh, being a cyclist um, as a competitor, um, meaning that it's kind of really nice to uh, be able to translate the real fundamental science um, to uh, practice. But at the same time, I have to understand um, that science is being made in the labs and for instance we do like steady state intensity exercise I don't, I don't know 200 watts for three hours this is just something that not, never happens um, in the real world because we have um, ups um, and uh, um, climbs and descents and we have riding in the peloton um, or riding in the front um, so those things i need to kind of always think hard about and try to kind of um, go out on my bike and experience stuff and then think about it properly before like giving stupid recommendations to the um, riders. Are there any examples um, where you've taken quite a radical approach to nutrition because you've got perhaps less prejudice from being involved in cycling for a very long time? Yeah, I guess like these amounts of carbohydrates, I just go all in with carbohydrates and when uh, it comes to the numbers. So I'm like very probably like quantitative person. So I just look at the numbers. And if I say, if, if I figure out that certain amount of carbohydrates are required, I just like say, well, we need to have those carbohydrates. And I don't care if they come from like sugars or they, they come from um, normal foods. I just, we need to get those carbohydrates in. Um, and it can be pretty radical sometimes to the point that then, um, after a few months after the race, uh, you hear from the rider and yeah, he tells you that basically it was sometimes more uh, difficult to eat than uh, ride a bike, but it worked. Um, and sometimes you just have to do it. Um, so being a scientist in the field of like carbohydrate metabolism means that always in the lab, we use simple carbohydrates. So I have no problems whatsoever in recommending riders eating simple carbohydrates. Although I know in the long term, this is not something you want, but when it comes to performance during like a stage race, this is what you actually want to do. And, in, and um, by simple carbohydrates, uh, you mean kind of almost pure sugar. And um, I know um, you're a fan of Haribo. Yeah, so exactly. So the reason why I love Haribo is because they don't have any uh, fiber. Um, they have um, pretty much zero fat and it's just sugars. And it's sugars in different forms. So it's kind of two types of carbohydrates, like glucose-based carbohydrates um, and fructose as well. Um, and it just like goes straight into the blood, I guess. <laughs> um, 
and it's very effective if you want to kind of maximize the carbohydrate availability. Because one of the problems we see with eating like whole foods um, is that basically there is a lot of fiber there, there is some fat and everything delays absorption and fill up, uh, fills up your stomach or like intestines and then you feel full and you can't take more food. Whereas with very simple carbohydrates, you can basically eat loads before feeling full. Um, this is not good for like weight loss, uh, perhaps, but it's really good for like making sure you get enough energy um, in races. And was that the type of approach you used, um, for example, during Jay Hindley's uh, Giro d'Italia win last year? I think one of the numbers I heard at your talk, if I remember correctly, was 21 grams per kilo body weight. Yeah. For during some key stages. Yeah, so that's the number I have. I think that we achieved, like we were close to it, like 20 to 21 grams per kilo. Um, obviously, it was not just Haribo. It was like Haribo was just after the stage, basically. Everything else was basically normal foods in the recovery and at breakfast, um, low fiber, um, and a lot of carbohydrates on the bike. Uh, so he's really good on eating on the bike. And yeah, this is how we got to those numbers, um, which are not that this is something super special. I was looking at the literature just before or during the Giro last year and trying to figure out what the highest values um, reported are to see like if it's even possible or how, or how high we can go. And a few years ago, when uh, Chris Room won um, the Giro in this was, so 2018, I think, um, the values that were reported were 18 grams per kilogram of body mass. Um, and then I was thinking, well, can we go higher? And I found actually a study like from Australia from I think it was 80s or 90s uh, where they actually fueled the runners, ultramarathon runners with more than 20 grams per kilo body mass. So I was like, okay, so it's possible, let's just do it. Um, and yeah, um, it kind of worked. Um, it's not definitely not something that kind of makes an average athlete elite. Um, so it's not like it can be decisive in terms of like he was the best. This allowed him to perform at his best. But like if I use the same strategy, then like at Vuelta, basically you just, yeah, it didn't m make him win the, um, the race itself. Um, so it's all about the performance. Nutrition is just like supporting the performance, I guess. I've recently had to, um, I'm taking part in a, in, a, in a different trial and having to, to consume, I think, 1.5 grams uh, per kilo before doing the trials. And that is an extraordinary amount just when you put, say, that in rice on, on a plate. So um, is, is there a sort of way to quantify how much carbohydrate Jai was actually intaking? So, yeah, I guess it was like 21 grams per kilo body mass would be like, um, 1300 grams a day. Sort of, uh, seven, eight thousand, nine thousand calories or? Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's loads. Yeah. It's a huge amount. Um, you, you, but, but back to, back to Haribo, you mentioned, um, it having two, two types of sugar. Um, is, is dual carb, um, fueling a, a quite important way in which thinking around carbohydrates changed in endurance sport lately? Yeah, and I think this is the biggest difference between like what Chris Froome was doing with 18 grams per kilogram of body mass and what we were doing. Because um, back in the day, like a few years ago, most carbohydrate products for on the bike were 
uh, based on single trans like yeah just glucose or maltodextrin which is basically the same so uh, single transporter carbohydrates um, and the idea is a theory goes that by adding fructose um, you can increase the absorption of carbohydrates because a certain amount of ingested um, glucose or maltodextrin, and that's usually around 60 grams per hour, you basically saturate the transporters uh, for this type of carbohydrate. Meaning that if you eat more than this, the carbohydrates just sit in your intestines and just stay there, uh, potentially cause GI issues. Um, whereas if you add fructose, um, you can absorb more and therefore deliver more carbohydrates. And we really like made sure that um, we were using dual um, carbohydrates during the stages and also like um, after the stages in the recovery and in the morning. So basically we were able, or the riders were able to also absorb those amounts of carbohydrates. And if you're wanting to add fructose to your to your food or your snacks on a bike, it can be as simple as putting jam in a sandwich or on porridge. Is that is that correct? Yeah. So, like for instance, um, a few years ago, I did like actually, yeah, last year we published a study, for instance, breakfast study, which was like kind of we gave people rice with glucose or rice with fructose, and then we saw that um, exercise capacity is increased with addition of fructose. Um, so. The take-home message is not that we should be cooking rice with um, fructose, but definitely you can like have porridge and that some like um, syrups or jam or honey um, that also contain fructose, um, and that's how you do it. So you get different types of carbohydrates, um, and usually fructose is or actually fructose is very sweet. So anything that is sweet probably has fructose. Which, which topics you mentioned uh, hydration um, and heat acclimatization at the start of the, the podcast which other areas are you looking to research in future and what do you think might be the next frontier for sports nutrition i think it's just like about maximizing really how we can yeah, maximize carbohydrate availability to better understand about the things about timing and how actually the professional bike races influence the glycogen use and storage because for instance we don't know um, what happens on the descent um, can we actually like store some glycogen there we don't really know for instance what happens when the riders are going all out is the carbohydrates they're eating in gels actually used or is it just glycogen being used um, on that in those intensities because in the labs we only do um, steady state exercise um, for, for that you can sustain for like three or two to three hours, um, whereas they're going all out for like 15 minutes and we have no idea which carbohydrate sources are being used there, probably mostly glycogen, but can we still use the drinks or not? Um, so optimization of these things, I think, is really important. Um, and also like trying to understand whether it's important to actually maximize fat oxidation rate during exercise or not, or we can just go with carbohydrates and how this is affected by ingested carbohydrates early in exercise, because like, like long races, uh, flat ones can start very um, easy for the riders. Um, and like, we can just go and on and on and on about this optimization. Um, it, it's probably not like as substantial as just uh, knowing that carbohydrates are important, but still, I think in the long term, when you have three week long race, um, these uh, small details can actually matter. 
What about uh, some ways that um, people have been trying to increase their fat oxidization or uh, oxidation rather um, through maybe fasted training or carbohydrate restricted training? Uh, what, what are your views on those methods? So I used to like when I started like being a researcher in sports nutrition, I was uh, very much into this, this carbohydrate periodization with an aim to kind of let's say, teach the body to use more fats um, at low intensities or even like at higher intensities. Um, but like over the years, I've kind of got a feeling that this is kind of was a bit overhyped um, and that there is not a lot of evidence that this kind of works, um, that you can actually basically teach the body to use fats. Well, you can teach the body to use fats if you just go to a low carbohydrate diet, uh, which kind of yeah makes sense. The body will just use what it has available. But we know that low carbohydrate diets are not good for overall performance. Um, so in my view, when it comes to um, adaptations to exercise, what we actually want to do is maximize the training volume. Um, so to be able to sustain the training, the training demands and the training volume the professionals are um, undertaking, you have to maintain high carbohydrate availability at all times. So faster training, for instance, would result in like premature fatigue, you would feel more fatigued, you would feel um, less, the recovery process after such a training session would be longer. And we actually don't want to achieve that if you want to kind of still be able to ride for hours the next day. Um, so it can be a time efficient way uh, to train. So for instance, if you have 12 hours a week available um, and you basically have been doing these 12 hours for the last five years, um, and you basically reached your ceiling in terms of um, like your FTP or whatever. Perhaps this is the way to kind of try do one training session like this to increase the stimulus uh, because you will still recover. Whereas when you have um, unlimited amount of training hours available per week, basically you want to maximize the training volume, um, then this doesn't work in my opinion. Um, and it's all about yeah, the volume, how much flux, how much um, oxygen can we uh, basically uh, get the muscles to breathe or use um, in, like, in a, on a daily basis. Um, that's kind of very late term yeah, um, explanation, but training volume, I think, is the key. So, so I suppose it um, those those uh, restricting carbohydrate and doing yeah steady state rides could could be a, a good method for amateurs. But then, do you have to consider um, the the risk of riding with depleted glycogen stores, such as maybe lowered immunity, poor recovery, maybe just make maybe just being irritable later in the day? Yeah, or poor sleep, for instance. I like I really, for instance, myself, I really struggle to sleep when I have low glycogen stores. And imagine like having kids around you um, and be very irritable, uh, irritable. Uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of, it's a no-go probably. Um, so it's something that probably doesn't really work in the long term. There are studies showing that it works um, in some like young athletes. Uh, perhaps, yeah, there are people that it can improve performance, but there are also some other risks um, involved um, because like faster training on its own is probably not really the most like um, the, the, the best way, the most efficient way. You actually want also to have 
low glycogen, muscle glycogen stores. And you can only do that by like doing a really high intensity training session uh, and not eating carbohydrates after it. Um, and then starting the next session, yeah, without carbohydrates. So basically you're pretty much empty. Um, and then you have to make sure that you don't overdo the intensity or the duration during that training session. Um, otherwise the recovery will just suffer. Um, and after this training session, or even during, you have to start eating carbohydrates at some point um, and definitely immediately after in the recovery to basically speed up the recovery process. Uh, so you have to put a lot of thinking into doing this um, and only then can perhaps be effective. Yeah, it sounds like something to approach with quite a lot of, of caution and it's yeah, maybe, um, yeah, maybe, maybe best uh, focusing, focusing on higher volume. Um, I, I, I imagine that no amateurs need uh, 20 grams uh, per kilo body mass, but what, what might be a more realistic target if someone's doing, maybe someone's doing 10 hours a week, maybe someone's doing quite a little bit more 15 hours a week, or someone's doing, maybe can only get out on the weekends. Are there any rough carbohydrate guidelines that you'd suggest? I don't like like giving out numbers as such. Um, I really like to look at like most cyclists, amateur ones are using power meters these days. So just looking and doing the like simple mathematics in terms of like, okay, um, I do X amount of kilojoules per week, for instance, on average, um, that gives you kind of energy, energy, um, exercise energy expenditure and then you can add on the top of like your resting metabolic rate and multiply this by I don't know 1.2 1.3 depending on how active you are or just use like my fitness pal or something to get a rough idea of what your energy demands are and then you just decide well um, let's say you have I don't know, energy, uh, the required energy intake per day, like let's say 3000 kilocalories. And then you say, okay, the fat intake can be, I don't know, as low as 0.8 grams per kilo, um, can come out like as 50 grams. And then the rest, if then you have protein, which is let's say 1.8 grams per kilo. Um, and then the rest is carbohydrate. So basically you can leave the amount of fat and protein fixed for the whole week. And then you just, um, adjust the carbohydrates based on the uh, demands of the next training session. Uh, that's how I do it. For instance, if I know that the next day is like hard training session intervals, I will eat more on the day before uh, just to fill up the glycogen stores. Or if a long ride on weekend is coming, that definitely means eating a lot on Friday um, to make sure that I'm well fueled. Whereas if it's an easy training session coming up, well, just don't bother. Um, I, you don't need don't need to eat that much. Um, so you can be a little bit hang, hungry, for instance, if you want to lose some body mass. But definitely, like always, think about what's coming in the next training session, and then yeah, um, come up with the numbers. Um, and it can be as low as just having like two grams per kilogram of body mass on certain days, um, like before an easy training session or um, yeah, a recovery day, whatever. Um, or like everything up to like probably like five, six, seven, eight um, grams per kilogram of body mass. Yeah, I think um, t talking about sort of your nutrition on, on Friday before weekend rides, it's a mistake I'm sure um, pl plenty of us have made is that not sort of just thinking, oh, it's an easy day or maybe have a rest or even not even a short ride and actually not having very many carbs at all and then getting to Sunday afternoon and being absolutely ravenous after two weekend rides. Yeah, exactly. So 
um, if you like have a rest day on Friday, um, this means that you have to eat on that day because you're always fueling for the next uh, session. Um, and it's sometimes actually interesting to me when like even Tour de France or like those stage races, there is a recovery day and the next day can be like a mountainous stage and the riders think, oh, we don't need to eat today because it's, um, it's a rest day. We don't do any exercise. Whereas if basically that's the day when you want to fill up the glycogen stores for the next day. Um, if the next day is easy, then yeah, no problem. Um, but easy for them means like, yeah, just riding in the bunch. Whereas um, like group rides can still be hard for amateurs because they are not as used to them as um, professionals. Um, so you definitely want to eat because if you like don't eat and think, oh, I'm going to just lose some weight by not eating, this will result in like severe hunger on Sunday and you would just go to, yeah, and eat shitload of um, shit basically yeah yeah you s sort of hypothesized that one of the reasons behind um uh, Pogaccia's struggles on the Col de Granon stage at last year's Tour de France might have been um a, a similar error where um he didn't sort of f fuel in advance adequately after a flat stage yeah it's always like kind of this kind of I did it's, it's kind of hard to kind of predict what's going to happen the next day because in three weeks is a long period and you have to maintain the energy balance um, in the riders. Um, but there are different approaches how people do it, but knowing like how glycogen behaves and um, yeah, from the, like basically on from the science, um, we kind of know that probably you don't really spare muscle glycogen stores by eating a lot on, of carbohydrates on the bike. So basically, um, you still need to have carbohydrates after the ride. Um, even if it's like end of an easy ride, um, just like flat one, there are still many accelerations during those rides and they still eat like glycogen stores. Um, so before really hard rides, before, before really hard days in the saddle, you probably want to kind of really go all in with the carbohydrates rather than just like, oh, we just need to replenish what has been lost in terms of energy uh, because you're fueling for the next day. Um, and also knowing that glycogen um, supercompensation, for instance, um, takes more than 24 hours and you only have like eight or nine hours um, available, um, yeah, ex excluding the sleep. Basically, this means that you have to really eat a lot um, before such stages. And, and, and how often do you have to remind um, your professional riders to the importance of, of eating on the bike? Because um, I think consumption is definitely definitely increased and um is 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 that that can can that also apply to um sort of yeah cl club riders as well yeah of course um and i keep i um i need to remind myself every weekend um as well because i just don't do it um i think like oh i don't need it i i'm, I'm well adapted to just not eating carbohydrates and then well i struggle towards the end of the rides and then i get um like um hypoglycemic so i can feel it that my brain is not working normally anymore and i just yeah. is that like is that like bonking yeah, yeah yeah it happened like to me even though i know pretty much yeah quite a lot i guess um I, it happened the last two sundays uh, so <laughs> I, I also need to teach this to myself and yeah it i can't kind of um yeah 
say it loud enough that really eating on those bike rides is really important. And one strategy to kind of do it correctly is that you start with perhaps a lower amount at the start of the ride, but really fuel well for the last two hours, because this is when your muscle glycogen stores are really low. And this is when you start relying mostly on the carbohydrates coming from the drink or the blood. Um, and this is when you want to eat a lot. And any unabsorbed carbohydrates and not utilized during the ride will just serve as a recovery um, nutrition when you finish it. So it kind of makes sense to really fuel well for the last two hours. So sort of backloading the nutrition on the bike a little bit. And I, I sometimes when I'm doing that, I think, oh, I might be, this is wasted. These are wasted calories, but actually that's going to help you um, recover for the next session. Yeah. And one of the things is kind of, it's, and I understand the point is you actually want to like spend the calories and then intake some good food, like go for a, like, yeah, let's say a low fat pizza or have some good pasta. Whereas on the bike, you're eating the gels, which always taste the same and they're not really delicious. Um, so you kind of want to save the, the carbs or the energy for later in the day, um, which, yeah, I understand it, but it's probably not what in terms of performance is the best that's that that's a that's a really good tip to sort of uh draw things up uh tim but are there any um key takeaways that you'd like to like to give yeah so the first one would probably be uh, always think ahead so what's coming what the next training session is about is it intervals do you have to do them like really hard okay if yes, then you have to fuel really well. Um, just go low in fat if you're concerned about the body weight gain um, and go like really high in carbs. If it's like an easy training session, um, so the energy expenditure is going to be low, then just make sure that you eat your like uh, vegetables to eat your enough protein. And then you can be a little bit hungry in terms of carbohydrates um, if you want to lose like lose weight. Um, so it's always about fueling in advance and fueling on the bike, especially for the rides that are longer than two hours. I think it's really, really important. Um, and if you're like concerned about overconsuming carbs, it's last last hour, last hour and a half or last two hours that are most important. Um, and when you kind of decide what fuel you use on the bike, um, like hey, pay attention to try and use like mostly carbohydrates, foods that are low in fat. So some certain bars have a lot of fiber, a lot of fat. You don't want that. It's all about carbohydrates. And look at the composition of the bars and gels so that you get glucose-based carbohydrates and maltodextrin or glucose or dextrose and fructose, not just yeah one uh, single source. Great. Thanks very much, Tim. It's been fascinating speaking to you. It's really good insight into professional cycling, but also yeah, what, what we can learn from the best. Um, yeah, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. If you did enjoy this podcast, please give us a five-star rating on your favourite podcast provider. And if there's anything we can improve, we'd be grateful for your, for your feedback on the article at bikeradar.com or you can email us at podcast at bikeradar.com. Also, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and share with whoever you think might enjoy it too. Thanks again for listening and speak soon. Thanks for listening to the Bike Radar Podcast. If you've not done so already, please subscribe and share with your friends or leave us a rating if you've enjoyed this episode.